1: I say that introduction every time I start a podcast as a reminder about what I hear the most from product managers, that they really do care about making products that customers love, and they realize they need the knowledge for that, they need the influence in the organization, and I've also found that we need confidence too. We need the confidence to just step forward, sometimes into a void, and make that happen, make reality for our customers, products that customers love. Now, this time on our discussion, we're talking about product roadmaps. And they're frequently used badly, almost as handcuffs for product managers. We most recently explored this concept uh, over a year ago with Bruce McCarthy. At that time, he had recently co-authored the book, Product Roadmaps Relaunched, How to Set Direction While Embracing Uncertainty. Since writing the book, Bruce has been really busy helping companies improve how they do use roadmaps. And I wanted to find out what he's learned in the last year. So... We got together. That's what we'll talk about. We're going to cover what a product roadmap is, who the roadmap is for, the pitfalls of roadmaps, the inputs needed to create a roadmap, as well as how to organize a roadmap, and also how to prioritize product features. And remember, I take notes for you. If you want to see a written summary of what we talk about, maybe share it with the colleague, share it with your group, just go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 226, and you'll find the notes there. Now, let's talk to Bruce. Bruce, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators again.
2: Pleasure to be here.
1: So we talked about roadmapping back in episode 169, a little more than a year ago. And at that time, you had a book that came out called Product Roadmaps Relaunched, How to Set Direction While Embracing Uncertainty. Mm. And this was a pretty important book. It got lots lots of good accolades. And it casted product roadmaps in sort of a different light, really as a collaboration tool and not kind of the Gantt chart-looking, timeline-driven thing mm-hmm. that we often mm-hmm. think about. It really has a different purpose. It's been a year now. I want to get back together with you. This is still a very hot topic. People often ask, you know, how do we really construct roadmaps in a way that help us and not hinder us? First up, what has changed in your perspective over that year? Is it still a collaboration tool? Have you added anything to this perspective?
2: That's a really good question. A lot has not changed, honestly. The, the idea that a roadmap is not so much a delivery plan, a release plan, a project plan. It's a collaboration tool. It's a communication tool. It's, um, it's a statement of intent and direction. It's Mm -hmm. a way of rallying all the troops around not just what are we doing, but why are we doing it? What are we expecting to come out of it? In fact, the why is really the most important part of a roadmap. Um, If you've crafted a compelling vision and you've explained what the benefits to the customer will be and what the benefits to the company will be if we succeed, well, then a lot of the details about precisely what we're doing can be worked out after and can Mm -hmm. be worked out in collaboration. A lot of the questions that come from a good roadmap conversation are, how might we type of questions? How might we achieve this vision? How might we move toward our objectives in the best possible way? And A good roadmap avoids being really specific about deliverables and dates in order to facilitate those conversations. What's the best way is the question right. to get to these objectives, not what's the first thing we thought of and wrote down. Right. Uh, so so all of those things have not changed. And um, I've been uh, been uh, traveling the globe, actually working with companies on employing this methodology. Um I've been to um, Amsterdam, New Zealand, uh, Italy, the UK, uh, and a bunch of cities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Working with companies on how to uh, how to how to instantiate this, how to make it work within their companies. But I want to get to your question about how have things changed. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've discovered in working with a bunch of companies is that one of the fundamental components that I mentioned is what are the business objectives? What are the outcomes, not just for the customer, but for the company that we're looking for in a good roadmap. And um, what I discovered in working with a lot of companies is they don't really have, in many cases, really clear objectives, Mm. really clear company outcomes that they're driving toward. And so I've been spending a bunch of time with companies working on crafting those. And that's um, led me in a couple of directions. Uh, one is that we mentioned briefly in the book that one good framework for setting objectives is OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. This is the framework that uh, was originally developed by Intel in the 1980s, but has become a phenomenon um, and is driving the organizational efforts and, and scheme for big companies like Google and um, uh, and, and so on today. Um and it's a, it's a, it's a really good universal sort of, um, uh, framework for, for driving goals. Um, so I've spent a bunch of time working with companies on OKRs and they map really neatly to, to the roadmap. Sometimes if a company has already done some work on OKRs, um, especially from kind of the HR point of view, uh, it's sort of a, the fashion for how to set, um, the objectives in your management, your MBOs, your management right. by objective. Um, they say, well, how does that relate to the roadmap? And I say, well, really, that's, they should be reflections of the same underlying strategy. The objectives in your roadmap and your OKRs as a company, they don't, shouldn't just relate to each other. They should be the same thing. Um, and so let's let's leverage them back and forth um, between these two things. Then any specifics you have on your roadmap about deliverables and dates are in support of your OKRs, in support of your objectives. Um, the other thing that I've ended up working with companies a lot on as a kind of a next stage, we, we craft a roadmap, we crafted around objectives, they put together OKRs. The next stage, um, is how do we organize within the company in order to make sure that we're going to be able to achieve these OKRs and deliver on our roadmap. And, um, a lot of companies are still, um, organized, Along very functional lines, you have your marketing department, you have your sales team, you have your uh, product management and development teams, and finance, and and so on. And those com- those uh, those those functions in companies that get above even above like a hundred people, but certainly by hundred and fifty or two hundred people, they tend to ossify into silos, uh-huh. and they stop really working effectively together. And there's a lot of overhead in communication and coordination between them that adds a lot of cost and slows things down. And, and the most frequent complaint in those organizations is lack of good communication between mm-hmm. the functions. The best way to achieve your roadmap and, uh, and your OKRs, I find, is to put together cross-functional teams that are tied to those objectives. They own those objectives they're not, and by that, I don't mean overlays. I don't mean a virtual team that meets you know once a month or once a quarter to kind of work out a uh, a list a checklist of things we're all going to do and then doesn't talk in between. I'm talking about more like a scrum team, more like an agile product development team uh-huh. where you've got the all the critical functions required to achieve the mission. Represented on the team all day, every day. You've got engineer. You know, in a in a classic software Scrum team, you've got engineering, design, test, and product all sitting together, all working together full time on whatever product it is that they own. And the 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 reflection of that at a larger scale across the entire organization in order to uh, deliver on the value of the roadmap and of the OKRs. Is um, that you include the other necessary functions like sales and marketing and finance and so on? Um, sometimes they're not full time. Sometimes you've got a core team that's very product focused, but the and the other t- team members are half time or a sure. third. But um, but if uh, if part of your product centric effort is we're going to launch this new thing into a new market that we've never gone into before. I'd be surprised if you didn't need full-time effort from a marketing person.
1: This is kind of the just definition of that cross-functional product team. Mm-hmm. And a lot of siloed, functionally-oriented organizations just aren't used to that kind of product team. Exactly. And I suspect you're seeing this more away from the U.S. than probably in the U.S., just because product management in general tends to be slightly more mature in the U.S. than it's practiced in other countries.
2: Yeah, it varies. Um it's quite quite interesting having worked with a bunch of companies outside the US. There's definitely a perception that it's more mature here in the US and I'd say on average that is true. Both product management and the uh the cross-functional practice of product development. Um on the other hand, um there's a lot of variability too in different uh, different places. I go to um New Zealand um uh, semi regularly and in cities like Auckland. That, that's and, a
1: really rough life, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. <I know.
2: laughs> it's a beautiful country. Uh, you, 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 it's definitely got to be on anyone's bucket list. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I what I find is that the communities there are smaller, um, but that the understanding of the best practitioners of what does good look like in product management and product de- development is every bit as sophisticated as mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley or Boston or New York or, or, or whatever where have you. The message is only just getting out to the company as a whole though. Okay. Um, so the, it's a little bit like a bunch of uh, like small islands yeah. uh, outside yeah. of the U S but I'll, I'll give credit to um, to uh, to companies in New Zealand for listening because hmm. I've been, I've been there and there is a great interest in these concepts and I'm working with some companies in New Zealand now on um on OKRs, on an outcomes driven roadmap and on cross-functional teams and um how to how to make that work across the entire business.
0: I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher performing product team meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of five to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high performing team in just nine weeks, 75 minutes a week. Without travel, this is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com/rpm.
1: A lot has remained consistent. Still, a think of product roadmaps as a communication collaboration tool, helping to get people on the same page, kind of pointing that direction of where we're headed. A recognition of, I would probably describe this as some lack of alignment and strategy. If we don't know what our core objectives are, business objectives, that's probably a symptom of of there not being a clear alignment throughout the organization from the organizational strategy, its strategic objectives, how that makes its way into business objectives and what we want to do with innovation, right? And OKR is a really good tool to help us kind of address that. As you were talking through that, I was curious just what you've seen In terms of who creates those OKRs, because you're working with organizations that are going from kind of this siloed function, siloed organization to a more product team or orientation. Mm -hmm. And I would expect the product teams are the ones creating and owning the OKRs. But as they make that transition, that might might not be the case. What what are you seeing there?
2: Well, I, I do see that sometimes when it's bottom up, it's usually starts in organizations like engineering or product. Okay. Um, and those teams, they, uh, they readily read about, hear about from their colleagues and, and adopt um, innovative ways of thinking and working like OKRs. Um, but there is an increase in interest also in the C-suite in oh. OKRs. And so I'm seeing a bunch of organizations um, try it out. And um, unfortunately, the most common scenario when I see that, though, is that they're very top down. And what's missing in both scenarios is the necessary collaboration across levels and functions for OKRs to really drive the business. Right. So um, you'll see a scenario, for example, where the executive team or even just the CEO will write the OKRs in isolation and just hand them down Uh and say, well, these are the OKRs for the year. and Maybe at that point, other people will develop their own OKRs to cascade down from those, or maybe they won't. They'll just sort of accept them as is. And that's usually that's usually kind of the first level of adoption, is that'll hap- it'll happen that way. Um, and um, I find usually sometime during the course of the year, um, it becomes very clear that nobody's actually thinking about or operating according to those objectives anymore. They're just on the shelf and forgotten about until right. the end of the year. And uh, that can be because A, they, the people who are actually doing the work that's supposed to um, achieve the OKRs had nothing to do with the process of developing them. Yeah, exactly, um,
1: there was no buy-in, no, no right, participation.
2: There was, there was never any buy-in and I think the quickest way to buy-in is co-creation.
1: And that's kind of what OKRs are supposed to help us with too, right? They are also a collaboration tool.
2: Right. But then also there, I've seen a bunch of examples where, and maybe also because of lack of co-creation, since they were created at one level and then um, cascaded down to the next level without any real dialogue, they quickly get out of date. Um, hmm. They qu- quickly discover that the way that was proposed to measure progress against a particular objective is not actually the best way to measure the uh, the real intent of the objective, or it's not feasible, even. Hmm. Um, uh, it, uh, we didn't realize it, but we can't actually measure that particular thing. Yep. Um, and nobody really knows well, are we allowed to change the objectives in the middle of the year? Um, but we already told the board we were going to, th- this is how we were going to measure success. So what do we do now? And they don't know the answer to that. So they just keep sort of executing on their list of things to do because it's easier than facing, that, facing the reality that they probably have to rethink their objectives. Okay. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of attempts that are not working the first time. But on the other hand, I think people see enough promise in this uh-huh. that they that I'm seeing a number of companies come back at it a second and even a third time and try again. And um, that's where I think somebody who's done it before, um, like um, a referral from someone on your board or um, or a consultant like myself can be helpful because we can talk openly about, well, this is what this company did. This is what that company did. Um, No, it's really okay to change the OKRs if you've discovered that they're no longer serving you. um, And here's how and Mm -hmm. maximize transparency. And if you really want them to work, it's got to be a collaborative. Right.
1: I appreciate you sharing your experience with that and how OKRs are kind of making their way into your work on roadmapping too. Mm -hmm. I like to work through kind of the specific steps of creating a roadmap because I'm sure you're finding still a huge variety of stages of maturity. And a lot of us need help with, you know, how do we put together a useful roadmap and not pull our hair out in the process? And there was a great line that you shared when we talked about, when we talked about this the first time a year ago, about how roadmaps make product managers out to be liars.
2: Um, (laughs) Do do you remember this one? Yeah, it's a quote from David Cancel, Mm -hmm. um, CEO of Drift. And he says, um, I'm not going to get the words exactly right, but effectively what he says is, um that uh the traditional sort of roadmap of features and dates um is a no win scenario because either I'm going to deliver exactly what I said six months ago um when it's no longer the right thing to do. Right. It doesn't actually solve your problem. Or having learned that it's not the right thing, I'm going to do, I'm gonna change my mind and now I'm a liar. Yeah, that's a no
1: win situation. Right. So we need roadmaps that work for us. So l- let's say that you and I, everyone listening, we are part of a, a product team, a new product team, and we're working on a new product, something that is a bit unusual for us. And for everyday invaders, it's probably helpful to think about this from just your personal experience if you're more aligned with the marketing side because that's where you grew up or more the engineering side or whatever the case is, how you might construct a roadmap. Hmm. So if you could kind of walk us through the steps for this, Mm -hmm. putting together a roadmap for a product, and we'll go from there.
2: What I frequently see is that when people jump into trying to create a roadmap, the first thing they do is they start making a list of features Mm -hmm. um, or or kind of a to-do list. Then if they're thinking hard about it, they're like, all right, well, what do we got to do first? And they're thinking in terms of a project plan, in terms of engineering steps like, well, we got to build the foundation and then we can start building the, uh, the various features on top of the technical foundation. And pretty soon they've got something that's going to take them two years to ship anything. And it's a list of, um, of capabilities or features or technical things and that nobody has really stopped to think about why they need them or what is the, what is the goal in the end. So I caution them to put aside that list of features um, and start with the basics. Who is our customer? What are they trying to accomplish? What does success look like to them? How do we and how do we make them more able to accomplish what they want to accomplish? How do we make the customer more awesome? Uh
0: Um
2: and that could be that's same with B2B and B2C. B2B may be more awesome in achieving their business objectives, B2C may be just cooler. You know having more fun uh-huh. um, but more awesome in either case, so it starts with the why. It starts with a vision of the future that uh, that is awesome for all concerned, uh, the customer and the business and then so I sort of walk through those steps with them. I say, let's first craft a um a vision of human awesomeness, and then let's talk about the business side of it. how can we give give the market what they want? Um, and make money at the same time. So that's that's two out of um, out of my um, main components uh, product vision and business objectives. And then at that point, you can start thinking about um, what are we actually going to do. But the mistake again is not to jump directly from there to features. The next step is to think about problems. What are the obstacles to that level of awesomeness that we want to give the customer? Either their obstacles, problems we need to solve for them, or our obstacles in solving those problems. Like Mm -hmm. we don't have the necessary technology platform or the necessary skills in-house or what have you. Um, So we're going to make a list of problems. And then we're going to prioritize that list of problems, not a list of features. We're going to say, all right, um, these problems, which of these problems, if we solve it, um, would have the most effect on moving the needle on achieving our product vision and our business objectives. And that gives me a gross prioritization of um, which problems to try to tackle first. Uh-huh. And if I if I if I can bring in also a how hard is each of these problems to solve right. part of the equation, I can balance return on investment at a very high, gross, simplified level, oversimplified level. I can say this problem would, if solved, would add a lot of value. And it's not actually that hard a problem to solve. We think, um, even though we haven't done the work yet, so we're going to go with that first because it's we can quickly get to market with something that will add value to the world
1: mm-hmm.
2: and to customers. If you think about your roadmap from from that point of view, you've gone through all of these steps before you start talking about features, right? And you've you've um, provided a framework for judging which features you should actually work on because you've already narrowed down the field of um, uh, two to one or two problems we're going to start working on. And you've defined those problems hopefully well enough to be able to judge, well, we have this list of 100 possible feature ideas, which of these actually applies to this first problem, and which of them is most likely to solve this problem in the best, most defendable, um, and easiest to achieve way.
1: Yeah, you already know, everyone listening already knows that I love that customer focus. I think that's where we need to start with everything when it comes to uh, product work that we do. Mm -hmm. And in that, those kind of steps you just laid out, and we're not done yet, but what you were kind of doing there was putting the emphasis on the customer's problem. And in my mind, I'm thinking in terms of benefits more than features. And I think if we did nothing else but rewrote our existing roadmaps from here's the features to here are the benefits... Yeah, we're, we're on the right. We're on the right track. We're, we're at least thinking now more about the customer than we are engineering specs.
2: Yeah, and you can do it that way too. If you have an existing roadmap that consists of a bunch of features, you can reverse engineer a problem-oriented, outcome-oriented roadmap. And I've I've worked with companies to do this. And here's what typically happens: uh-huh. they start uh, they start asking why about every feature on the roadmap. What's the benefit to the customer? What's the benefit to us as a business? And they start rewriting the items on the roadmap in that way. And then some very interesting discussions happen. Because sometimes when you try to rewrite a feature as a benefit, you can't. You're kind of like, well, I don't really know what the customer would get out of this. It just seemed like we ought to do it. Well, why? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not really sure. Okay, maybe it shouldn't be on the roadmap. Right. Um, if you can't justify it from a customer benefit or a business objective point of view, why are we doing it now that, and so you get into very interesting discussions. The one, one caution I want to give for those Uh in, um, in engineering or who work with engineers. um, When, when I say these kinds of things, the fear that usually comes out at that point is, well, some things are necessary, but hard to justify from a business point of view. Two classic examples. One is regulatory compliance Hmm. or, um, safety, uh, health and safety. Um, and I disagree. I think those are easy to justify from a business sure. point of view. They're simply must-do. Yeah, they, they They are. They must-do. They are must-do because otherwise someone is going to get sued or hurt. They're addressing risk, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're addressing risk. And you can use similar logic in the other one, which is engineering will sometimes say, well, we need to retire technical debt or we need to address scalability issues, or we need to fix bugs. Um, And How do we justify those from a business point of view? Our product managers are always pushing back on those things and saying they need to focus on features. But I think actually thinking about it from a benefit to the customer and benefit to the business point of view, it's actually easier to talk about the benefits of work on technical debt or scalability and infrastructure or reliability because you can say okay you can make the business case. You can say, well, currently we can handle a hundred simultaneous users, but our our growth projections are that we're going to be at 250 simultaneous users next year hmm. if we're successful in selling as many units as we expect. So we had better be ready for that. Right. Otherwise, we're, we're going to fall on our faces and we're not going to be able to take on 250 simultaneous users. So um, there's an easy justification. Yeah. And, um, and and uh, reliability and bugs and so on, that can be justified in terms of preventing churn.
1: Sure. Or just future additional costs. If we're actually keeping good metrics, which is a challenge, but if we're keeping metrics on the time it takes to correct a bug, and we see that time increase because our technical debt, the complexity of our architecture, architecture has been increasing. There you go. We know we are slowing down our performance as time goes on.
2: That's right. If you wonder why um, we go into this in, in the roadmapping book a little bit, if you wonder why over time dev teams seem to slow down even after you add more resources, um, one of the reasons is that you're increasing the complexity of your, um, your solution you're adding more and more capabilities, So you're increasing the surface area of it, if you will. And so you're therefore increasing the size of your testing matrix. Huh. And the, when you add complexity, you cre- you multiply um, the likelihood of bugs and the necessity for testing actually exponentially. The, uh, the number of tests increases exponentially with the number of features.
1: It adds up quickly.
2: Yeah. This is good. So
1: we are going through identifying the obstacles, the problems. We've talked about assessing the benefit to the customer, the benefit to the business. So where are we headed next in creating a good roadmap?
2: Well, a couple of things usually need to happen. One is you need to get buy-in. Suppose you've created a roadmap by doing everything that we just said. You've prioritized things um, and you've got them in, in the rough order you want you still maybe don't know how long it's going to take to tackle each of these things. So it's difficult to put it on a timeline. So one thing you can do is not put it on a timeline. You can just have three broad buckets of things we're working on now, things we're working on next, once those are tackled and things we're, that are on our list for later, but we're not sure when. Um, but if you need to have some sort of a timeline, then you need to, um, you know, for, um, for, talk, for, for, Having conversations with channel partners, for example, about which year, which model year, will these innovations um, show up, um, then you um, you need to have some due diligence on how um, how big are these things, how hard are these to tackle, and so you so you can reasonably put them into time buckets, and that might be a research spike on the part of your team, or it might be, and here's a a, a shortcut for this, it might be since you've still only defined things at the problem level, you could say, well, you know what? We think the return on investment of spending one quarter or two quarters on this problem will be high, but we are not convinced that spending any more time on it will pay off well. Huh. So we're just going to say problem problem X, Q1, problem Y, Q2, and we'll get as far down the list of um, making things better for problem X in q1 as we can okay and then the other thing of course is you should be revisiting your roadmap because everything i just said is a hypothesis about what will make sense and at the end of q1 you'll be where you are and you need to reassess okay did we make enough progress on problem x or um and now problem y really is more important as predicted, or did we not make enough progress on it, in which case we're putting off problem Y until Q three, and we're continuing on for another quarter on problem x and just like changing okRs as you go into it, that's okay
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's yeah. okay in fact, it's expected that you will update your roadmap on a regular basis.
1: at least we want that expectation that this is a collaboration yeah. tool, yes, not a project Gantt chart, which oh by the way, we always you know fail to meet
2: anyhow right. But I'd rather reframe it from failure to to adjustment. Well, we're, yeah, to we're update. learning along the way, right? Right. And so if you if you regularly provide an update with few or many changes on an expected cadence, well, you're you're training your organization to expect from you that your roadmap is in continuous reevaluation. Um, I have a friend who uh, who sends out a new version of the roadmap by email regularly every month to his entire team. Uh-huh. And um has a dog and pony show of what was shipped once a quarter um, on the same day that they release the new roadmap. And so it's just uh, just the normal course of business. Yeah, yeah, you, you build that into what people expect. That's really good. Right. But the other thing what, um, you've got to do is you've got to you've got to do your um, you're you're getting a buy-in. And so part of the buy-in is working with the folks who are delivering on the roadmap about what is reasonable time frames. But you've also got to get buy-in on the vision, the objectives, the priorities, the problems. And so uh, I recommend a couple of um, methods for getting to that buy-in, which we describe in the book. One of them is you know, getting everybody in a room for a kind of a workshop or what used to be called a charrette, um, where you kind of work uh, the whole roadmap as a group cross-functionally with the main stakeholders and, um, and you spend how long, ever long it takes, a few hours, half a day, something like that, to arrive at an aligned um, roadmap. But the prep for that is critical. Just saying, all right, we have a draft roadmap. Let's get in a room and go over it is usually doomed unless you've done the proper prep. And one of the key steps in prep, I think, is what I call shuttle diplomacy, which is where you go one, uh, you go around to all your key stakeholders. And have one-on-ones with them, as informal as you can manage. Like, you know, have you? I'll drop by the office and say, "Have you got five minutes?" Um, and sit down with them and go over your work in progress, your draft roadmap that you're that you're working on, and ask for their help. This is not a formal presentation where you're informing them of the roadmap and asking for feedback. This is co This is co-creation. This is collaboration. You sit down with your incomplete work in progress side-by-side side with them, literally, if possible. Uh-huh. And you say, I'm working on this part and I need your input here and I wonder what you think about this and I really wasn't sure what to put here but I won- I thought you might have some like, good ideas and do you think this is more important than that and why? Uh-huh. Um, and that way, at the end of that session, the person you're working with thinks of it not as your plan anymore but as our plan. Right. And when you get to that workshop where all the key stakeholders everybody's had a hand in it Mm -hmm. so everybody feels um some ownership and some buy-in uh and maybe there's still some debates to be had but everybody feels like it's their plan in some way right they're vested
1: in it now and that's the cross functional nature of our role as product managers and our real need to have influence so that we can help people get that buy-in into our vision for what we want to accomplish
2: And by the way, your customers or your channel partners are also stakeholders for your roadmap and should also be involved, ideally, in the same way. Now, lots of companies don't share their roadmap outside their four walls. Right. Um, Because they feel like they're making an implicit
1: promise on something they know that may or may not happen.
2: Right. But if you frame it the same way as, hey, I'm working on my roadmap and I would love your participation, mm-hmm. I, would, um, I would love your input before we finalize anything. Yeah. Um, I
1: think then, that's an excellent way just to help further deepen relationships with customers, too. You know, as a product manager, do. I used to have these, you know, try to get out once a quarter with key customers and just say, you know, here's the things we're thinking about doing. What are the things that you've been running into? And right. let's see if we can help with those things or not. Right.
2: Yeah. And then the implicit question is, do the, thing, do, do the things that I'm thinking match up with the things that you're right. thinking yeah. or not? And this, so this is a perfect opportunity to do your customer research along the way. And
1: mm-hmm.
2: you can do that without showing them the roadmap too. You can just go and do your qualitative interviews and your um, job shadowing and, and so on. Um, but at some point actually saying, okay, so based on everything I've learned, here's um, at least a first draft of what we're planning to do about it. Is a way of checking that you with them that you have understood properly what what the problems are and what adequate solutions might be.
1: That's really good information, Bruce. I appreciate you walking us through. A lot of this is just reframing how we think about the roadmap, right? Start with the customers, start with the problems, not the features of our product. Yeah. But the customers don't really care about our product, right? They they care yeah. about solving their problem, no. and that's a great place to start. And it, it just it helps so much of our decision making process and simplifies things. There was another topic I really wanted to dive into with you, and I think the best way to do this is probably to have a we'll call it a part three since we you know had that talk a year ago. This is part two, mm-hmm. which I think is a, a more complicated version of everything we just talked about, which is how do we create a roadmap for a portfolio? Uh, yeah. So, so would you yeah. be willing to come back in the future and we'll tackle that topic?
2: Sure. It's the it's the next logical topic. You know, you think about how do I craft a roadmap for one product, mm-hmm. and then then the question becomes. How do I roll that up into a whole product portfolio? Right. And um, spoiler alert, it's not as simple as um, summarizing a group of, of, of roadmaps. Right. It's actually, you can do that and there are some u- uses for that, but there are some completely different um, investment decision planning type uses for a portfolio roadmap. Absolutely.
1: A portfolio is a more strategic tool, and mm-hmm. we, we, we do some things differently. Okay, so we'll arrange that over to Innovators. We'll get back on that topic with Bruce here soon. Bruce, you know,
2: you've listened before. I like innovation quotes. What do you have for us? Oh, my favorite quote is is um, th- that's been coming up a lot lately in work with customers is not from anybody famous. It's It's a quote I found in a blog from a from a little company called User Onboard. Huh. They have a blog that, uh, the name of the title of the blog is features versus benefits. But the, the money quote is people don't buy products. They buy better versions of themselves. And there's an image that shows Mario from Super Mario Brothers. Yep. Um, and, um, he's, he represents the customer. And then the image shows a flower. From Super Mario Brothers, which is a power up, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and it's that's your product. And then it shows Super Mario, who's twice as big and breathes fire. And
1: that's new and
2: improved, <laughs> exactly. And that's what you're really selling. You're selling a better version of yourself, of, of the customer. Yeah, you're selling the power up, but the customer doesn't really want the power up. They want what the power up can do for right. them. And they um, they want actually even more so they want what they can do having swallowed the power power up right they want that they can jump twice as high yeah. they want that they can breathe fire how
1: people see them right how they now take on a new role with their family with their boss with their peers it's
2: exactly
1: all so kinds of they, things mixed into that
2: when people buy you know that next level of fancy car they're they're making a statement about um, status when yeah. they. Right when they buy um a um a juicer they're making a, a statement about um I want to be um, healthier and I want to eat better and I um that's that's really what I'm buying it's a, it's a more extreme way and a very compact way of explaining features versus benefits it does um, I, I like that
1: phrase i have have never come across that phrase before right that people buy a better version of themselves
2: yeah it's kind of gone viral if you uh if you google that phrase, Mm -hmm. buy a better version of themselves. Um, There's a whole first page of uh, Medium articles and blog entries um, before you get to the link to user onboard, which is where I think it started. They phrased it just right, I think.
1: Excellent. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I always like a a new quote. That one embodies a lot of other quotes, but I like the phrasing there of buying a better version of of themselves. Yep. Bruce, thank you so much. People that would like to check out more about how do you actually go through and create a usable roadmap, get your team on the same page, get your managers on the same page with you, use this as a collaboration tool. How can they find out about your book and other resources that you have?
2: Well, the book is available on Amazon um, under that title uh, that, that you mentioned. Product Roadmaps Relaunched. Relaunched, right. And it's also available on O'Reilly, the publishers online subscription service called Safari. Huh. So if you go to O'Reilly Safari, there's a small monthly fee and you get access to their entire library of books, the electronic versions of the books. And they also have online courses and um they have a uh, small but growing catalog of audiobooks. And I have just come out of the studio recording an audiobook version of Product Roadmaps relaunch That'll be in on Safari. They tell me next month, excellent, uh, sometime in April, and um, I'm really excited about it because I think um, I love audiobooks. I listen to them all the time, and it, it uh, I make use of them in the car mm-hmm. or when I'm out for a walk, and it's um, it's become actually the way I read more than any other um, method. So I highly recommend the book. Um, obviously. Um, but also, um, I have a, um, I don't call it a newsletter. I call it a nano letter. It's called, and cause it's really short. It's called mm-hmm. one thing on product culture and it's every week. And I try to keep it down to just one concept really quick. Plus either an event that I'm going to be appearing at or an open job rec, um, for product or design or engineering people who, um, at companies that, uh, where I have friends who are recruiting. Uh-huh. Um, and it's meant to be really bite-sized, short enough that you can read it uh, without really scrolling much on your phone um, while you're in the line at Starbucks, if you want. And so if you go to um, productculture.org, my website, um, you can sign up for it. Excellent. And then lastly, I um, I, um, I talk at a lot of conferences. The next couple that I'm going to be at are, um, I'm going to be at Mind the Product in san francisco in july doing a workshop on okrs for product teams and um, i'll be doing the same workshop at mind the product in london later in the year i think it's october
1: very good i was just gonna ask you if you were gonna be in london or not so good enjoy those workshops i, li- I like what mind the product is doing appreciate their efforts to also help product managers help all of us get better at our craft and Bruce, I appreciate your information, helping us to get better at road mapping and uh, how we might leverage OKRs with that. And I will look forward to doing part three. We'll talk about portfolio road mapping.
2: Terrific. Always a pleasure, Chad.
1: Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make your move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Bruce shared some really important information with us about how to use and construct product roadmaps. Find the written summary of that discussion at com slash 226. Once
0: again, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.